Okay, welcome to Hattrick. I'm Jordan Della Coltman, joined by Elliot Tanti. It is just the two of us. Um, this is becoming a bit of a habit for you and I, but it, it's always fun when it's just you and I. There's a little bit more air space for us. We, we, we miss Braden. We hope Braden's doing well. He's actually uh, on stage right now in Jane Eyre at the Citadel. There's a little plug for him. So if you're in the Edmonton area, go see the Citadel's production of Jane Eyre. I think it'll be really great. It's nice to just have live theater back. Um, I know all of that's there. Uh <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about sports because that's what we do on this show. We've got an amazing day for Canadian soccer. Just fantastic. Uh, we finally, uh, well, it's, well, we'll get to that. But we've been talking about this for months and we finally reached the conclusion of what has been a crazy qualifying journey. Um, and we've also just got some interesting conversations about some things going on in the sports world. But before we even get started, Elliot, like the Oscars were tonight and that's all anyone's going to be talking about tomorrow. This is crazy. Will Smith kind of, you know, he stole the show, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, for those who are under a rock at this point on Monday, trust me, this will be your cooler conversation. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was good. Is there still water coolers like in workplaces? I don't work (laughs) in a conventional workplace. Do people still have conversations like that or? Yeah, absolutely. We have to, we have to address this. Um, Will Smith, uh, physically assaulted Chris Rock. It was on national television in front of like a hundred million people. Yeah. 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 It was uh, very uncomfortable and led to a very uncomfortable <laughs> night. Last hour. Yeah. This is the thing that weirds me out about this whole Will Smith thing that I've learned about 10 minutes ago. This is all this guy has ever wanted is this Oscar. If you get the Oscar when he did the movie about concussions yeah. and it was like, that's what sparked this whole like, uh, in the entire conversation about racial inequity in movie awards. So the guy is going to win tonight. You'd have to think he, well, I guess he maybe doesn't know, but like, is there a worse time? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I don't think the Oscars have had this kind of like Twitter buzz following them since we had the whole uh, La La Land um uh, debacle where the wrong the wrong name was called and yeah this was crazy uh, Will Smith um, kind of lost his mind it reminded me of the whole Kanye West stealing the mic from from Taylor Swift thing but on like a much bigger scale like you can just foresee the next week of late night television this is the only thing they're going to talk about you know there's going to be punchline after punchline this will be an SNL sketch ne- sketch next week and now Will Smith and his PR team he just won his his first and only Oscar you know the crowning achievement of an acting career that has been you know what 40 years in the making and he had to come up on stage in this very awkward manner to collect an oscar after like you said literally slapping chris rock in the face and and stealing the show and now he has to go on like the pr uh rehabilitation tour while chris rock gets to play the victim yeah it's also great pr wise for him yeah i mean it it's nothing but this is just good for everyone involved. <laughs> I guess. I'm not sure. This what is the dumbest. I don't know, man. This is this is where celebrity culture for me um, is all is honestly like this is why I hate it. Because everyone's just gonna get more rich from this you're not wrong uh, but on a night where where abc and disney tried really hard to turn the oscars into a giant pr uh, uh commercial for all of their products they kind of got off stage there by will smith all right let's get to it here's some actual sports conversation on our little sports podcast here we go topic one <laughs> this is garbage <laughs> yeah. should we just start again now that we've got that off our chest it's like does that even need to be in there let's just i'll edit it down to something convenient 
You know what? This is the opening. Let's just uh, let's just run with it. Let's see. Let's see. All right, here we go. All right, we're starting off the week of March 28th as World Cup qualified Canada. It has been months in the making. You were so uh, excited to bring um, the story to us. Like at the very beginning, you were so on board the train in the early part of qualifying. You could see this coming. You know, I, I admittedly am not as like a devoted soccer or football fan. I, I've kind of followed it um, somewhat casually. And to be completely honest with you, I've been much more in, like invested in the women's side of Canada's soccer prowess for the last uh, decade following Christine Sinclair's career and all of those things. But my goodness, the men have finally caught up to where the women have been for the, the longest time. They have put themselves where they want to be. It's the first time since I believe 86 that Canada will have the men's team in the World Cup of soccer. How excited are you uh, just at the end of what has been, I know, like such an invested uh, journey sports-wise for you as a fan? I am ecstatic. Like this is what I've been talking about and thinking about and and, like invested in uh, for the last year, the Canadian soccer regime led by John Herdman, but uh, there's a number of people that have uh, gotten Canadian soccer to this point is at its pinnacle. We just want a gold medal in women's soccer at the Olympic games. And now the Canadian men's team for the first time since like before we were born, Jordan is going to be at a world cup. And it's a young dynamic team that has done it largely without the best Canadian soccer player in Alonzo Davies, who's been out for various stretches of this qualifying round. Canada, you know, they said it best today. Canada is the best team in CONCAF. What, like, they're better than the Americans. They're better than all of the South American teams. They are number one in, in standings. And today they secured their future in being at a World Cup. This is going to be so meaningful, not just to the people involved and all the people that put all the hard work to get to this place, but the thousands, tens of thousands of young people that are going to get to see the country that they live in, that they're born in, represented on the big, the greatest stage. There's nothing bigger than the World Cup. And that is so meaningful and so important. And uh, I mean, for us, you know, we're in our 30s now. What this means to us is that we're going to see meaningful soccer for years to come. And, uh, and that's outstanding that this is, this is, this is what we were hoping for and they did it today. Yeah. And, and, and in such a, a fun and almost extenuatedly dramatic way, because obviously they had an opportunity to clinch, I believe on Friday, Thursday or Friday um, yeah. against uh, Costa Rica in Costa Rica. And there was a lot of excitement that that might be it obviously this team came into that game undefeated uh, in qualifying they were the only undefeated team left in CONCACAF they had just been so dominant and so successful um, but they they met their first real sort of moment of adversity losing one nil to to Costa Rica but it really set up what I think was even better uh, a finish storybook wise um, for the end of uh, of this specific journey to get here which was to to win it at home and they got to do that at bmo field in toronto in front of home crowd with the light snow falling very canadian you know um the whole thing just felt 
it just felt right. You know what I mean? In the end of it. And as you say, you know, they did it without Alfonso Davies, who's clearly one of the key pieces to this team. And, and of course he will be hopefully healthy and ready to go for the actual world cup, um, you know, in, in just under a year's time uh, and, and an opportunity as, as you say, for, for this country to really now fully get behind and, and invest in what this team has done, which is just so exciting. I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote here from John Herdman um, in his post-game conversations. So I quote, I think this country, they never believed in us because we've never given them that we've never given them nothing to believe in. They believe now. I think if we get, if we all get behind each other, this is the time for everyone to get behind football and unite because we can be a powerhouse. It's our time. And that sums it up, right? They have proven that they can compete. They've, they had to play two you know, perennial World Cup teams in the United States and in Mexico and some very good squads in, in CONCACAF. Obviously, the competition at the World Cup level is going to be much bigger. We don't know what the draw will be. You know, you get a good draw and you never know. You could be in an opportunity to make a little bit of magic happen. But the truth is, you're there. And that's, at the end of the day, what really matters. You're at the World Cup and anything can happen. And the crazy thing is, you know, narratively... Two World Cups from now are like, uh, you know, the, we were already looking at an opportunity for Canada to get there sort of as a as one of the three hosts. Uh, and they hadn't exactly sorted out how that was going to be. But that was kind of like the finish line. And for us to be able to do it and actually qualify for it and to be able to go and get this experience, especially for some of these young guys, it just builds the program in such a great way moving forward that by the time Canada gets to host World Cup games, you know, in eight years or whatever it is, that they will uh be in an even better position sorry you're right four years because we're almost in the year now is the 2020 so four years from now which is amazing lots of the same guys almost all the same guys will probably still be you know a lot of the young guys will all be ready to go and they'll already have a world cup under their belts experience wise which is so so exciting it doesn't matter just being there it's it's like we always talk about the nhl playoffs just get to the playoffs get to the playoffs yeah. anything, anything can happen. happen it's sports but but just seeing your team, like even if you get swept in four games, it's yeah. the same thing. Even if you don't win a game in the World Cup, to have been there and to have had that experience, and that is the all that 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 is that is what it means. That that, that every kid who grows up playing soccer wants to win a World Cup and for their country. And one of the players tonight, I didn't watch the game, but I watched the celebration. I caught it right at the end. And one of the guys said, "As a kid, this was my dream." but it, it never seemed possible hmm. because I was born in Canada and today it's possible. Which is awesome. It's possible for him in that moment, but it's possible for every young person. And I'll tell you, I, I you know, I've been very passionate about this. And I, I, and I spoke about my experience of going to a game at Commonwealth stadium here in Edmonton. And there were young kids that were so invested in, in the team and the, and the games and what had happened and the players. And it wasn't so much, you know, I was sitting in row 64 or something like that. Um, it, it, but it wasn't so much that, uh, that they were there and that they got to see it. And that, that, that was in itself a really powerful moment, but I could see these young boys who were talking about it, mm. seeing themselves in that place. And that is, remarkable and that is something that is fought, that we should foster and there's there, there are so many people many of which i don't even know uh that are responsible for this but i really have to double down on john herdman who has built a community and you know you know 
a, a national pride around this team and, and did so with the women's team as well, too. And, uh, I, you know, today I'm just, I'm just so proud that, uh, he's our head coach and the representative of this program and just what it means for our country. It's just, it, 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 you can't, you can't put words to it. Can't yeah. put words to it. So Canada obviously has one more game scheduled for this, this thing. Do they still have to play that? Like, how does that work? Ellie? I guess they do for the other team to, to, to figure out where they finish. Is that right? Yeah. They'll have to finish the, the playout, but they're guaranteed to be in Qatar. Now the higher that they rank in terms of the CONCAF, CONCAF standings, I know I pronounced that poorly uh, will will determine you know their their seating and, and where they presumably- yeah because okay. the final draw that they will now be a part of as one of the qualified teams 29 of the 32 participation teams will be known by april 1st and that is when the final draw to determine the um seating i guess or the the groups for I'm, I'm learning the lingo as we go here too the groups will be determined at that point so obviously 29 of the teams i guess the other three four teams that are outstanding they would be placeholders based on you know whatever the the final teams that qualify into those spots would be so they'll already know what groups they would end up in but canada will find out uh this friday upcoming um you know who they will be facing in the in in the group stage of the world cup which is crazy which is awesome that means this time next week you know we'll know all of that and that and that it, it again it we get to now have that th- this build up for however many months six months or seven months or whatever until next december i believe um to really gear up for what is going to be a crazy crazy couple couple weeks so exciting so proud of the team and 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 to do it on a home field too like Anyway, looking forward to the next uh, seven months. This team's this team's going places. Well, that one place they are one hundred percent guaranteed to go right now is Qatar. They will be there November twenty first, which is the first day of action for the World Cup of Soccer twenty twenty two. Wow! All right, that's topic one. Do you like fast cars? Do you like when they race? Whether you're a seasoned Formula One fan or you've just discovered the rush of racing, check out the Pit Stop Podcast presented by the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Join Jordan, Tyler, and Braden each week as they recap every race as well as break down the biggest stories on and off the track, all before setting you up for the next race and the Formula One schedule. The Pit Stop Podcast is available anywhere you get your podcast. <clears throat> All right, we're going to talk a little bit of Formula One. I know I'm stepping on the toes of my other podcast, the Pit Stop Podcast, which is airs. Uh, it comes out every Tuesday. We we, we will record uh, this week's uh, follow up to the Saudi Arabian Great Grand Prix. Um, but I, you know, I've got Elliot here. I know you're you're a um, fledgling Formula One fan. We've kind of got you a little bit on board. Um, but I also wanted to talk about because it, it was a fascinating weekend from a sports um, storyline place. So for those who didn't follow the race this week on Friday when uh, traditionally formula one holds two practice sessions on track to get the teams comfortable with the track drivers an opportunity to get out there. They try out a couple different setups. There was a um, literally an act of war that occurred two kilometers from the racetrack um, uh, rebels uh, um, 
out of Yemen attacked a oil an oil refinery in uh, Jeddah, which is the city that this this race takes place in the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, led to a huge fireball, a big you know huge explosion that was felt all over the area. Could be seen from the track. Uh, it delayed the start of f- final practice too. It then led to a fascinating um, evening in Saudi Arabia where first the team principals and the drivers met with officials to talk about safety, whether they felt comfortable being this close to what was clearly a volatile situation. The team principals were unanimous that they felt the race should go ahead and they left the meeting. The drivers kept a private meeting, uh, like a driver's only closed door meeting for three and a half hours. They did not leave the room until 4 a.m. local time on Saturday morning, at which point they had decided that they would go ahead with the race as scheduled, but it took that long for a consensus to be found. And apparently um, for several hours, there was a very strong possibility that the drivers were going to come out and say they were not comfortable driving and, and racing under the conditions that were there. They received information from the Saudi government, the Saudi, uh, I guess the I'm not sure how the government in Saudi Arabia works. It's probably a royal family of some sort. Regardless, the security forces gave a presentation demonstrating what it was. And basically the consensus was the Formula One track was probably the safest place in the country at that point because of the focus that had been put on it and the additional security that was there. They qualified, they ran the race. But, you know, this touches a little bit on a couple of your passions, geopolitics being one of them. We've talked a lot on the show about whether or not Formula One needs to be doing a better job uh, identifying countries they should or should not be in. And obviously, Saudi Arabia is right at the top of that list already. And then you add this to it. Um, did that in any way affect how you followed the race this weekend? Oh, and and uh, and I guess moving forward, like, uh, does Formula One have a greater responsibility due to its larger audience to start having these tougher conversations more frequently? Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so where I'd start with is that the reason why F1 shouldn't be running races in Saudi Arabia has nothing to do with the fact that it's near an active war zone. Saudi Arabia has uh, a long and tumultuous uh, relationship with uh, human rights abuses. And um, it is very clear, both in practice, but also symbolically, that when if F1 runs a race in that country, it is facilitating human rights abuses. So that's where I would start in terms of start and finish in terms of that perspective. Um, I think greater coordination between drivers around their rights as employees and what they should be doing uh, is an important conversation to have given the notoriety that F1 has now gleaned and you know i throw it back to you jordan in, in asking like we we see very clearly in most professional sports players unions i wonder uh and i don't think there is like a players union or representation of players yeah so in or uh, drivers in that sport and maybe that's a conversation that needs to be had because they are ultimately uh employees and workers and i wonder yeah i mean so there is what they call the drivers association which is a sort of an independently governed 
organization. I mean, for lack of a better word, it is not a union. It is just basically the facility or the facilitation of um, the opportunity for drivers to sort of self-regulate themselves. They have these, they have drivers meetings every weekend, every race weekend uh, in which they discuss the regulations or rules for that specific race and, and, and have the opportunity to bring up any kinds of issues that are there. And also formally as a group, they can file complaints or grievances with the FIA, which is the governing body of, um, yeah. uh, 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 of the, the, the governs formula one and the lower, um, levels of, uh, uh, of the formula series. Um, so that's kind of as much organization, I guess, as, as, as is there, the, this meeting that I, uh, that I brought up was interesting because it reminded me, it was very reminiscent to me of the meeting that occurred in the bubble for the NBA following, um, the attack in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when, several NBA teams, including the Milwaukee Bucks chose not to play that day. And there was a, there was at one point, I believe even in that conversation, a discussion about sort of just dissolving the bubble altogether and going home and just calling the NBA season off as players. Um, It was very similar to that. I don't know how close, obviously it was a closed door meetings and there was a lot of, there's a lot of different reports obviously about where people were at. It did seem like they were in there long enough that some serious conversations occurred. It's not like, everyone sort of got to the same place quickly. I don't know if that meant there was like two or three drivers who didn't want to drive and everyone else was okay with it or not. That, that's, that would all be speculation. I think the other challenge that Formula One has, and this actually goes back, I think, a little bit to the Netflix series and what has attracted people to the sport. Is Formula One, not unlike other sports, but even I think in a, in a more specific way, owns basically their entire broadcast package as an organization right? There is no independent broadcast. Uh, it is not like in the NFL where you've got several different broadcasters who have partnered with the NFL to prov- provide their content, but own their broadcasts. Um, Formula One has a partnership with Sky Sports in the UK, which is the official broadcaster of it. They're the one who provides the syndication worldwide. That's why when you watch on TSN in Canada, you're watching a Sky Sports feed. It allows them to have a single commentator in Crofty. Um, and it allows them to control what the audience does and doesn't see. It also means that the pre-race, the post-race shows, all of that stuff is produced by Formula One. And I think that there is a challenge there because it, it obviously, as you can, you know, it's like state-run media. They have a lot of editorial control as to how the narrative is shared. And I think that that's important um, to think about it in this conversation, not only in how you know, this specific event was, but as we talked, as you mentioned earlier, you know, dealing with these, um, yeah, racing in countries where, you know, we, we saw them pull out of Russia pretty quickly when Russia attacked another country. The question is, where's that line? Where should that line be in terms of wh- what your values are as an organization? You know, if I go back to 2020, you know, when Formula One was one of the last sports to pull the plug for COVID. Uh, they watched the NBA do it. They watched the NHL do it. They were supposed to race the weekend of that March 10th. So I guess it would have been like March, March 13th or March 14th in Australia. It was to be the opening race of that season. And there was an expectation they were still going to go ahead with it anyway. Australia's numbers weren't crazy, but they were growing like the rest of the world's were. And there was a lot of, you know, if you put yourself back there, there's a lot of unknowns. They were one of the last teams to do it. But Lewis Hamilton at a press conference on the Thursday said, I'm not sure why we're here at all. Wait, no, I actually do know why we're here because cash is king. And that I think stands up 
to this very day when it comes to how Formula One is run, you know, and I love this sport. I'm very invested in this sport and I continue to fall more and more in love with it as a sport. But, um, you know, it is not uh, any different than the NFL or the NHL or Major League Baseball or the NBA in the fact that it is structurally flawed. Um, All major sports is a business. That's the truth. The question is, which ones of those sports put an effort into running their business in a way um, that, you know, the majority of their consumers are comfortable with, I guess, is the question, right? We're seeing some of that happening in NASCAR where there's some real um, difficult conversations happening. Formula One probably is is beginning to get to the place where they're going to start having to answer those questions, I think, a little bit more. And part of that is because they've really done a good job growing a fan base. But with that comes a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different views that now you have to kind of take into consideration. I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but. So to tee up the Pit Stop podcast, which I know I will be listening to this week. It's probably on ordinary. Thank you, Elliot. Thank network. you. I'm going to ask this question just so you can give our fans here at Hat Trick a taste of what you guys do every week. All right. Does Alonzo's car burn out at the end if he's not fighting against his teammate for the first 15 laps of the race? Yeah, great question. And that is definitely going to be a contentious conversation on our show. I will say this. I don't care because I loved watching it. As a fan, that is what the support the sport is supposed to be, is even teammates uh, should be fighting each other for position. Um and Ottmeyer, the, the team principal, did say on the broadcast, you know, that they had a plan in place where if they got into that position, they were going to let the drivers race until such a point that they felt like they needed to then fight for position. I think the drivers may have taken it a couple laps too far because they all of a sudden were losing positions to Bottas and the Alfa Romeo. And as you say, you know, did he push his car too far? Good question. I think the other question mark is we saw the engine failures of Red Bull and their power units in the first race in Bahrain where all but one of them did not finish the race because of engine failure issues, uh, overheating. Now we have had both Ricardo's car and uh, Alonso's car, both of which are powered by Mercedes engines. All of the Mercedes engines have struggled so far this season with the pace. So now there are a lot of questions about, is there a flaw in the Mercedes engine that are being driven by multiple teams? That'll, those are both big storylines. It looked like Red Bull seemed to at least kind of figure out their problem one race uh, you know, after they, they, their first problem. We get two weeks off now before Australia. That's the fun part about Formula One is the schedule dictates the upgrades. So when you have a couple of weeks to actually go back to the factory and look at the data and look at the race analysis and decide what you're going to change, things get better, you know, for Mercedes, they're just clinging on to fifth and sixth in terms of pace. They need to find a way to get up into that fight. If they want to have a chance at either of the championships this season, going into Australia is going to be a big first step for them. We know they've got upgrades, um, but every team's going to have upgrades. That's the exciting thing. So I don't know if that answered your initial question, but that's why these, these storylines just sort of explode off each other. These new cars have just opened up all kinds of new and exciting narratives. Uh, I think that's a great teaser for the Pit, Pod, Pit Stop podcast and uh, long live Red Bull. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Following up on terrible first race for them. They had a good race today and Verstappen won it. So, all right. Uh, that's topic two. Hey, if you're a fan of Hattrick Sports, then I promise you, you are going to love the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Hattrick's very own Braden Dollar Coltman sits down every Wednesday with his best bud, Christian Steck. And together, they break down all the news, 
rumors, transactions from around the basketball world. Whether it's the NBA or college hoops, these two guys love talking basketball, and you are going to love listening every Wednesday on the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Okay, topic three this week, we're going to leave um, the sport on the field, on the ice, and on the court, and talk uh, about a campaign that's going on outside of the game, uh, the game sports in, 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 in general on their own. But it, it is a really interesting campaign that's sort of come to light in the last couple of days, and I'm really fascinated to hear what Elliot um, has to say about it too, because I, I'm fascinated by this, this campaign. So the, the YWCA of um, British Columbia uh, led a campaign and they have, they've got some pretty big hitting names uh, attached to this campaign. They are calling it the add the M add the M campaign. Um, and basically what the conversation is about is the idea that, uh, that, when we talk about women's sports, we add the women part um, because somehow men's sports are treated as the default um, and that women's sports are kind of left out of the conversation and they have to be added back in. Here's the example. You have the WNBA, you know, you have women's soccer. We don't talk about men's soccer traditionally that way. We talk about soccer or football or basketball or hockey. And it's not women's hockey or men's hockey. It's sort of just hockey. And that's where this conversation comes from. So the idea being, if we believe in equality, should we not be holding men's and women's major professional sports leagues to the same standard? If it needs to be WNBA to clarify which gender is playing that sport, should we not be calling it the MNBA for men's national basketball league or the MNHL or the MPGA. And they really focused, I think, on the four or five major sports where there is a women's uh, league currently competing um, in the same sport. So they've left the NFL alone because there isn't a professional women's football league currently um, uh, at that scale. But there is the, you know, the LPGA, there is the WNBA, and there's women's soccer and women's hockey. So it's a fascinating campaign. I think the biggest goal of it is to just draw attention to the disparity, obviously, between the two. We've talked on this show previously about how we have seen huge steps forward um, for diversity and for inclusion and, and moreover, an increase in coverage um, of these women leagues. Um, the WNBA has been the one we have constantly gone back to and pointed out for its successes. And obviously a big part of that being that the significantly more financially, um, you know, uh, uh, successful and, and scalable uh, league being the NBA has really partnered with them to help um, develop that, that, that sport and that organization. The question is, uh, do you think this campaign will get enough attention to start to continue to push these conversations forward? Um, what do you think, I guess, of the campaign in general? And, and, and what, what, what were your first thoughts when you, when you saw this come across your screen? So I think it's really smart. And for all the things that you said and sort of the articulation of why this is important, but I think it has a secondary effect that you didn't touch on that I think is, is maybe more important, which is that the, the leaks that aren't required to put an M in front of their name uh, exist because there aren't prominent women's leagues that they have to differentiate from. 
So there isn't a women's NHL. And by elite, like the NBA doing this, it signals that they are an inclusive space and that there is a women's league that they're invested in, that they care about, that leads to greater inclusivity in sports. And if you're something like the NHL, where there isn't that league, that it doesn't exist, that they're not invested in that, it sort of outs them as like having not given investment into to, to women's version of their sport. And, and I think that's important. I mean, there's, there's really complex conversations happening right now around hockey. Uh, and uh, Jeff Merrick, I have to tip my hat to him, has been doing a good job of not only just providing updates on that conversation, but I think in some ways his coverage is driving that conversation forward about how we need a women's national uh, hockey league. Uh, uh, we it needs to exist, and in, in, in these two entities that are, are competing need to come together around this. Uh, but that it, we also need the men's league and the national hockey league to invest in that because it's valuable and it's important and it promotes inclusivity. So by doing so you up the leagues that don't have the same leagues. And, and, and I'm, 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 I'm happy with that. Even just as like a baseline strategy. Um, on the other hand, I'll be pragmatic and a realist. These things are really important but they get lost in the minutia of ideology and politics and stuff too. And that's what really worries me is that um, this is an important conversation. We need leagues that foster women's sports and that in which women are properly paid and have access to the same thing that the men's men's league do. And I worry that we're going to get caught up in a letter and not about the real point here, which is that we women need better access to sports systematically from high school, well, before high school, high school, college, and in the professional leagues too. And I and I just I hope we we center the conversation on that and not just a letter at the front of an acronym, you know? For sure. And I, I you know, I feel like I've said this quite frequently recently on this show, but I do think that like, there is still great value in symbolism, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that um, oftentimes it is a lack of symbolism or a lack of narrative that causes these issues to flounder and struggle to get the attention that they deserve. Um, and as cynical and as sort of callous as it sounds, the true, the true, um, missing piece, I think, in terms of the greater inclusion and greater diversity of sport in general is about marketing. <laughs> it's really about selling um, the product, the characters, the people. I mean, we literally just had a conversation about how F1 has grown so dramatically because of an absolutely masterful marketing plan. A, a bold choice to do something that others hadn't tried in the way they did it. And they were successful because they identified what about their sport they could sell. And that was the characters, the drivers, the, the team principals. And they did it in a way that was entertaining, was dramatic, very reality television-esque. 
tapped on all the things we romanticize about sports. And I think that when you look at the examples we have of truly successful women's programs in the professional side of it, or even just like the national side of it, they are often also attached to really well-marketed athletes and individuals. Soccer Canada doesn't have the program it has if Christine Sinclair isn't who she is. That's just the truth. Now, you and I might know the majority of the names of the women on Canada's national team, but I guarantee you if I was to pull the majority of Canadians, they probably could name two or three of them, but they would almost all know Christine Sinclair's name. That's marketing. That's sales, right? Uh, Sue Bird, uh, Brittany Griner, um, the examples from the WNBA are the same. The teams that have the big name players tend to be the teams that get the money, that get the advertising and all of that, because that's just the reality of it. The bigger sports have the advantage of a much longer, much more developed um, brand, but that's what's there. You know, again, going back to the UFC, we use them as an example for the Formula One thing. And the piece I missed in that story is if you want to look back at the actual genesis of what caused the UFC to explode in North America the way it did, it was Ultimate Fighter. It was also a television show. In many ways, that was the blueprint for Drive to Survive, right? They literally had a reality TV show about fledgling fighters getting into the sport and growing, and you invested in them because it was dramatic. It was, you know, weekly. You, you watched it as a TV product. And I think women's sports um, has an opportunity to try to do that. And this may be just one of the you know, fledgling ways they're trying to draw attention to it. I don't know if this is going to do much more than you know, grab some headlines for a period of time. If that's all it does, that's good, because at least that's something. But it, but it needs sustained forward momentum for it to really, I think, become um, what it is. We've already said we're seeing growth, right? We watched... I've been watching a lot more women's sports on TV just being scheduled than I ever have before. I think that that is a sign that the networks are trying, that the, the broadcasters are trying, but that, that has to be you know, continually, continually stoked for the success long-term to, be, to, to, to survive, right? Fair enough. But I, the problem is more systemic than that, Jordan. Yes, absolutely. Good, strong marketing campaigns. But where are we seeing success in women's sports? It's literally the only sports that involve one type of investment, which is just making sure they have a ball. It's basketball and it's soccer, right? We need more investment in sports yeah. and, 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 and access to sports and investment in women's sports. And, and that, 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 that's a micro, like that's, that, that's a bit rash and, 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 and simplistic. But we need more. What it says to me is we need more investment in women's sports in general. You know and, what? I, I think you're right. We do need more investment in it, and it's interesting that it's the two single ball from. sports for sure. Yeah, but I think that the truth from. is, Elliot, we're this conversation though. I think is more about professional sport, and I actually think that it like I think women's hockey at the minor league level is probably stronger right now than it has been in its history in terms of involvement. I would argue, I think hockey Canada, probably hockey USA have done a lot of that grassroots development because they do have the Olympics as sort of the like benchmark that those athletes are being yes. pushed through, but Absolutely. they need something else higher up to be the, 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 the fuel chain. You know what I mean? That's exactly it. Because why do we watch women's sports to watch Canada versus the United States? 
The United right. States is going to kick the shit out of every other country and Canada is going to kick the right. shit out of every other country. And then they're going to come together and whoever's got the better goal defense differential with the other teams is going to be the favorite going in. And maybe they've played each other before or whatever, but there isn't yeah. a competitive league in that there. That's not a competitive league. That's the two best teams, the yeah, two rich totally. teams, the teams with the most investment and, and it's, and it's minuscule investment because when we're talking about equipment and like just getting access, like, like, at the level, at the collegiate level, or at the the, the the similar level to like the minors here in Canada, yeah, on the women's side, you're buying all your sticks, you're buying your skates, you're not getting any, you're not getting paid to play, and not that yeah. the men necessarily are too, but there's actually like investment in that, like you know the building is different, like you know at least I think universities, you're right, have done a good job of of creating equity between men's and women's collegiate sports uh in the hockey context but it's just the outcomes are different the future is different absolutely but the investment is far less it's far less for sure i mean we got women in 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 professional women's hockey right now they're arguing over health benefits can you imagine like like just access to like good doctors that they don't have to pay for that that maybe their team like well, that's not an option. Like the investment. Is yeah, not- and the challenge the NHL has, I think, put themselves into here is there are two competing leagues who are trying to get off the ground, and the NHL doesn't want to pick one. They're kind of trying to get them to merge, and there's all of this ridiculous. Yeah, we should thing. have that conversation. That's a really important conversation for another day because I, I I think that there's there there's something there that and and I would like you know this podcast to to to, to at least track that because I think it's important because we need to be doing that too because that coverage is important. Yeah. You know, no, no matter how minuscule, but but it comes down to investment and it comes down to people taking a risk. And because that's where you went, because it's the it's the initial investment in the WNBA that gets uh, college March Madness women's basketball on our TVs 10 years later or 15 years later. It's because there's investment, there's interest, because there's a future there. I, I mean, we need to be pushing for this as fans and uh I would also say, though, I think that it's there's there's another piece to it that is like if you think about what people emotionally invest in when it comes to sports, right, you have to develop the brand of a team in a better way. And that's why I have argued with the NHL, like you want to make a sustainable women's league in the NHL, every Canadian team should have a team attached directly to them in that city. And I don't want it to be called the women Oilers or the women flames. I'm talking about a developed brand that is associated with that the same way that you've seen the success rate of junior teams in this country in bigger cities only survive when they are attached to the major team, right? Some of the smaller cities across the country in the WHL in Saskatchewan and Manitoba have succeeded when they, because they have a long rich history of that minor league team or that junior team. But for a, a women league in Canada to actually succeed and in and North America at large, the NHL needs to be partnering the same way that the sparks in LA do the same way that the, 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 you know, all of those teams need a, a, a partnership. I've said this also, it's like, why aren't we watching back like double headers in these things where you buy season tickets to the Edmonton Oilers. And as part of your package, you get, you know, the, the, tickets to like the 30 games of a 60 game season for the women's game. No, I completely agree with you. And, and and who drives a lot of the charitable giving of these NHL franchises, particularly in Canada? It's the girlfriends of the wives of the players. I mean, you look at the board of the Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation. It's Ryan Nugent Hopkins, 
uh, wife is on there. Connor McDavid's longtime girlfriend is on there. Like there, there isn't there. There's spaces for this to be created, and it's not just a women's issue, and women should be doing it. In fact, it, it, you know, my point doesn't articulate this clearly. Like that, we need investment in these spaces, and we can do this. Like there's 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 a drive to do it. You have the resources. Like let's create a space for professional women's hockey at least in this country and at least, you know, in this league, there is just look at what we were talking about in our first segment. How valuable is it for a young person to see someone that looks like them, that likes the game that they like have success on behalf of their country. It's possible. It was impossible until now. Well, and you watch how much money you watch, how much money soccer Canada is about to get right? Endorsement wise, sponsorship wise, that little bit of success, watch how much money floods into that program now. Yes. Right. And as it should fine, they've earned that nothing to be taken away from that, but that's, what's missing here on the other side is that the, the investment and the opportunity that's missing. And I would also say like, you have to, like I said before, it's about brand development. It's about brand building. It's about brand awareness. It's about community building because at the end of the day, that's all sports teams are. They are a community of fans who invest in an us versus them relationship with the other teams in their league. And you have to create an emotional connection to that for it to be successful. The same, you know, that is how this works. It's why they're literally called bandwagons. You know, when someone is emotionally driven to just jump on board with something, that's why it works and there are a lot of different ways to do that formula one is a great example of how a good narrative does that right as i said the same thing for the ufc people become diehard emotional in it you know the other thing that's missing we are watching an explosion of sports betting in major sports that's the next piece for women's sports is the opportunities that are there for daily fantasy for like the i I don't know what it's like for the WNBA, but there are probably great opportunities for people who may not be interested in that sport to become interested in that sport through a side door. Like I love daily fantasy. I play, you know, I'll bet on anything from like badminton at three o'clock in the morning because I just want something to bet on. There's a, there's a target for, for some initial sponsorship money right there. Go partner with MGM. They're buying everybody else. Right. Anyway, I'm, I, I think we we've proven the point that there are copious, um, avenues for this to go and opportunities for this to grow. And I think that that is what you and I certainly hope for. And what I think the majority of people, I think right now in the sports community are hoping will happen. I hope this campaign does a little bit to grow awareness. I don't know where that will go, but you know, it's a step. Mark my words right now, when there is a women's national hockey league available to everyone, I will host a podcast show devoted to that topic. That's how invested I am in this. That's how important it is to me. And I, not only that, people will listen. I always listen to you. I enjoy our conversations every single week. Listen, we don't have a show next week for a very specific reason. Uh, I have to congratulate you and embarrass you just for a moment. Our good friend Elliot Tanti here is marrying his beautiful wife, Alale, next weekend. So we will not have a podcast next weekend. Uh, I know you were hoping to do it, you know, as hungover as you might be on the Sunday, but we're not going to we're not going to drag you out for 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 a podcast like this. Although, look, we're going to know where, where Canada is in the seating. You're going to want to talk about it. I know that's the case, but we will wait an extra week. So we do not have a podcast next week. Congratulations, Elliot, in advance on your nuptials. Uh, 
you know, very excited for you. Welcome to the club. Um, it truly is a truly is exciting. And look, uh, if you are out there and have thoughts or opinions on anything we've talked about, please, 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 please hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, or on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to hear your opinions on all of these things. If you're interested in learning more about what we were just talking about, the website you want to go to is let's add the m.com. Um, you can go watch the, 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 sort of pitch video that they've put out there talking about it's time for the equality of sports. You can download one of these cool badges um, that they've rebranded the NBA, the NHL, MLS, the PGA tour. They've added the M to them. They're kind of cool stickers. You can put them on your laptops or water bottles. If you want to, you know, keep pushing the cause forward, check that out. As I said, let's add the M.com. Uh, and uh, if you want to know more about the podcast, hit up the ordinary podcasting network.com. That's Hatrick. Patrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It's produced every week by Jordan Dyler Coltman and Braden Dyler Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. I've had a couple neutrals tonight too, so you know, Jordan. Okay. What the fuck is a neutral? Is that like a off-brand this is nude? The thing that, you, that you drink in the in the six days leading up to your wedding to make sure that you fit in your wedding suit. That's the, that's what I'm sorry. Good to know. <laughs> A little late for me. Um. (laughs) The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.